name is Jim Midget. I'm one of the associate pastors here. I have a question for you. Have you ever met one of those people that become a, a frenemy? You know what I mean by that? They're a friend, but they're not really a friend. And they tend to be those people that life comes really easy for. You know what I mean by that? It's just so annoying, isn't it? Some people can just get by on a wing and a prayer, and, and everything falls into place for them. Uh, in high school, I had a friend named Steve. He was one of my best friends. And he drove me crazy because life always came easy for Steve. Always. And it still does. It still drives me crazy. He actually right now is doing his dream job, working for a well-funded camp for the Baptist Convention out in Alberta. He lives in a giant house. He's got a family. Uh, he met his wife way back in high school, and she's pretty, and she, she's athletic, and all that stuff. Uh, he's got four kids, the oldest of which is named Olivia, and I didn't know that when I named my child Olivia. He's got a full head of hair. He has terrible nutrition, but one of those metabolisms that he can eat styrofoam and it just sculpts his abs. Okay? It drives me nuts, this guy. One time, one time, he was out, he found $600 in a ditch where he was shooting a music video. Okay? That's the kind of life that this guy leads. And it just drives me crazy sometimes. And it leads me to ask the question, what am I doing wrong? How come I don't have what he has? How come life doesn't come so easily to me? Do you relate? Have you ever asked that question? And it leads to some other questions, doesn't it? Like, does God play favorites? And we ask this question from time to time. But there's a much more serious question that's kind of bubbling beneath the surface of that. It's the question, do I measure up? And that's a tough one. And many, many years ago, there was a king named Saul, and he asked that very question. See, Saul called the commander of his army, Abner, into his tent, and he said, Abner, whose son is that young man? Now, I know this question doesn't mean anything to us right here, right now, in this moment, so I think we should probably back up a little bit and understand where this question came from. See, Saul was the king of Israel, and Israel was at war, constantly. They had enemies around them all the time. They have different ite names, the Hittites, the Amalekites. They're all the way around them. But there's one particular enemy that was really fearsome. This enemy's name was the Philistines. They owned quite a, lord, a, lord, they owned quite a large portion of land uh, at the southern end of Israel, just off of Judah. And the Philistines were bad because they were well organized. They had a central government. They had a sense of purpose. They had a well-trained, well-armed military. They were masters of iron. And so they commanded some of the most fierce weapons at the time, the iron chariot. These things were like, were like tanks when the tanks first rolled out in World War I. A terrifying prospect, an unstoppable killing machine. These were, were quite the weapons, and the Philistines controlled them all. And using their military might, they were able to control the trade in the region. And so their strategy was pretty simple. They didn't want to conquer and colonize the other territories around them. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in dominating trade. And so they would go out, they would find the trade routes that would lead towards the sea, and they would simply dominate those trade routes because they had the manpower and the weaponry to do it. 
So what they would do is they would go out to, to towns that would oversee these trade routes, and they would conquer that town, then they would leave a prefect and a garrison there to just watch over the trade routes, to make sure that no raiders would come by, and to make sure that all the wealth from the land was being funneled back to the Philistines. And so what they would do is they'd go into these places and these surrounding regions, and they would conscript slave labor. They would take whoever was there and they'd bring them back to their homeland to construct walls, to construct roads, or maybe they would force them to work the very land that the people owned, so that all that wealth would come back to the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines would even conscript those local populations into their army to fight for them. And so we have instances of Israelites fighting other Israelites on the side of the Philistines because they were slaves. And so this is a time of great frustration and great evil for Israel. And they're crying out for help. And we, last week we were able to experience some of that as they cried out for help and eventually they want to have a king put in place. You see, they think that if they had a king, then this king could go and he could negotiate with these other countries and they would have a political system that would work a little bit better. Because up until that point, they were just a series of tribes. They didn't have any central government. They didn't have any way of communicating with other nations. And there was God the entire time saying, No, all I need you to do is obey me. Obey me. Do as I command, and I will take care of you. But they didn't listen to that. And so God cooperates with them. He says, All right, fine, I'll give you a king. And they named this king Saul. And Saul comes in, and he is a brilliant commander. He comes in and he rallies the people together via threats. And the people come together and form an army. And he goes out and he wins some pretty amazing victories. If you look through 1 Samuel chapters 15 and 16, you'll see Saul go out and do some things that armies really shouldn't be able to do. And they do them really well. And they win some victories. And all of this glory goes to Saul's head a little bit. Because before one battle, they're waiting for Samuel to come, Samuel's the prophet, and to offer a sacrifice to bless the battle and bless what they're about to do and all this stuff. And they just can't wait anymore, and Saul goes ahead and offers the sacrifice on his own. He takes over a role that he was not supposed to take over. He starts doing what the priests or the prophets were supposed to do. And he was not of that office. He was the king, not the priest. And if we know one thing about God, we know that God wants obedience. This is what God wants. And so when Saul does not obey, God says, alright, you're not going to obey me. This is what's going to happen for the rest of your kingship. Therefore, I reject you as king. And so he sends Samuel to tell Saul, God has rejected you as king and he's going to anoint another. Now imagine for a moment that you're the king of Israel. And a prophet of God walks up to you and says, you are no longer going to be king. What are you going to do? What are you afraid of? See, God tells Samuel to go to a town called Bethlehem. He says, there you will find the new king and you will anoint him. And Samuel, in chapter 16, verse 2, he says this, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. See, Samuel is afraid. He thinks that Saul has spies out watching his moves. And I think Samuel is right. Because from this point on, we see Saul get progressively, progressively more paranoid. 
And we see Saul do things that he would have never done earlier on in his career. I think Saul really did have spies out. I think they were watching Samuel's every move, trying to figure out where this next king was going to be from. Because maybe, just maybe, Saul could stop it. Maybe, just maybe, Saul could do something about it. But Samuel goes anyway, because God requires obedience. So Samuel goes to this town of Bethlehem, and he finds a house of a man named Jesse. And Jesse has a whole bunch of sons. And he comes to, the, to Jesse and he says, I am going to anoint one of your sons king of Israel. And this is pretty exciting. I mean, imagine that. Someone knocks on your door. Your child is going to be king of all of Israel. All right. Great. Let's go get him, you know. And he's very excited. And he trots out his sons. And one by one, Samuel looks at all of them. And he says, no, no, not him. No, no, not him. No, no, not him. And they go through a series of sons. And eventually, Jesse's like, well, that's, that's about everybody. And Samuel says, isn't there anyone, anyone left? And Jesse is like, these were great candidates. Why would you not choose one of them? And we get one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Samuel says, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, David this other son that is still out doing some work. David had a heart that was going to obey God. This was what God was looking for, obedience. He had a heart for God, and the Lord looks at the heart. And so in verse 13, Samuel takes the horn of oil, and he pours it on David's head. This is their way of anointing someone, of, of proclaiming them to be special. And he anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on David in power. Now it's important that we see that. You see, we haven't gone anywhere in the story with David yet, and the Spirit of the Lord has come onto David in power. It has gifted him. It has strengthened him. It has given him the opportunity to be the leader in Israel. And it's very important that we realize this, because the Spirit of God, we find out, in this verse, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. You see that? God removes his spirit from Saul and places it on David. He removes the kingship from Saul, and he places it on David very early on in our story. And then it says that the Lord sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. And I really wish we had a lot more time today to discuss that, but we don't. So put a pin in it, remember, write me an email, whatever, I would love to talk to you about that. But here we see Saul now, the brilliant strategist, now becoming paranoid. He now is disheartened, and, and this spirit is tormenting him, and he is having an awful time of it. And so his servants gather together and they say, well, well what, what can we do for him? What, what do we know that will work? And someone comes up with the idea of music. Music, it's good for the soul, right? We'll, we'll find a musician to come and to play for Saul. And so they debate as to who they should get. And in verse 18, one of the servants answered, I have seen the son of Jesse in Bethlehem, who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord, the Lord is with him. 
Meaning whatever David is doing, he is being successful at it. Because the Lord is with him. So let's just take stock for a moment as to what we know about David. Okay? Most of us who grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, we remember hearing stories about David, about who he is. Some of the, the younger generation may have seen some animated vegetables who played out some of these tales. And we see David as this little tiny boy who wears a backwards cap and can't speak quite properly. And, and we hear about David being so young and being so small. But the description that we're given here in Scripture doesn't quite fit that. Now yes, he is a young man, and yes, he does get referred to as boy, even in the story that we're going to explore. But he was a young man. He was a warrior. He was a musician. And the Spirit of the Lord was on him and made him successful in what he did, just like the Lord did for a guy named Joseph. And so, David, the secret king, is brought into Saul's court and is, sits before Saul and plays for Saul. And Saul likes him so much that they invite him back day after day. And in fact, David is so successful at Saul's court that Saul names him one of his personal armor bearers, a personal attendant to the king. Not just anybody got to do that. Only people who were well-favored got to do that. David becomes best friends with Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. The people in the court really liked David. And David was successful in everything he did because the Lord was with him. Because he was medium. So while all this is going on, our enemies, the Philistines, are still on the move. You see, they could only take so much punishment before they assembled a much larger force. And they put together a rather scary army and they sent it about 17 miles outside of Bethlehem onto a hillside called Succoth. And there was the Philistine army sitting up there on this hill. And so Saul had to raise himself an army. Now you can't just pull an army together in those days from anywhere. They didn't have transportation that would allow you to come from way up north and come all the way down to the south. So he would have raised up an army from the local population, from Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. And so he raises up this army. He moves to intercept the Philistines. Now, just as a point of military strategy, not that I'm a brilliant strategist or anything like that, but if you have a position that's up on a hill, the worst possible thing you could do with your army is to charge straight at that hill. That's called the meat grinder. Because all you're going to do is die. Charging uphill, fighting uphill is not a good battle strategy. And so the Israelites move to an adjacent hill, and there's a valley in between the two armies. And the two armies are facing off against each other, yelling things at each other, trying to entice the other one to come down into the valley so the other guys can swoop down and attack. If the Israelites go down, remember, they're going to get bowed down very, very quickly because the Philistines have chariots. If the Philistines make the wrong move, they have to start fighting uphill and at least the Israelites will have a chance. And so the two armies are sitting there, staring at each other, day after day. And I want you to think about what that would have been like. You are out in the middle of a camp. It's a well-organized camp, but you're not well-fed. The only provisions you have are coming from your local friends and family, if they can send something to you. You don't have a lot of training. 
All the young men of those days would have been trained a little bit in combat, but not to the extent as professional soldiers would have. So you only have a little bit of training to fall back on. And your weapons? Well, your weapons are just sharpened farm tools. You see, the Philistines controlled all the iron. They wouldn't let the Israelites have weapons because they wanted to dominate, militarily speaking. So all you have is some sharpened farm implements, and you look around the camp, and there's some other farmers, there's some carpenters, a few shepherds, a couple fishermen. This is not exactly a wonderful fighting force. You're worried that any day now, your commanders are going to give the order, and you're going to have to run down into that field and just simply die. You're preparing yourself for that eventuality. And then one morning, you see something that you've never seen before. You hear a great shout coming from the opposing camp. And you look down into the valley, and there descending from the camp comes a monster. He's over nine feet tall. His arms are covered in scaly bronze. His legs are like tree trunks, gleaming with the armor that's on them. He has this enormous helmet that makes this sort of grotesque mask. And this monster has weapons. He has an enormous sword about the size of you. He has spears and javelins. He has a heavy shield that has to be held by an armor bearer. And he comes right out to the center of the lines. He comes right in plain view of all of Israel. And he growls murderously at you. He spits at you and at your family. He calls out profane names to your God, not showing the slightest amount of fear or respect. And you look at this thing, and he reminds you of those creatures that your brother would tell you about when you were little. He reminds you of a dragon, and you wonder for a moment, how am I ever going to fight that thing? And you wonder for a moment, is there really a God in Israel? Because this thing is standing here screaming at him, and he's doing nothing about it. And you wonder for a moment, could this thing himself be a God? Well, David, secret king, he gets sent from his father's house to bring provisions to his brothers who are fighting there in Israel. And so he goes into the camp. And he's there one day when Goliath is out, shouting these profanities at the Israelite army. And he sees what is going on. He sees all the Israelites simply trying to avoid eye contact with their commanders. And he's wondering what's going on. He's wondering who is going to represent Israel. Who is going to answer the challenge that this beast has made. Do you know who was supposed to answer that challenge? It was the king. You see, the king was either supposed to go out and fight, or the king was supposed to assign somebody to go out and fight. And where was Saul? Nowhere to be seen. In his tent somewhere. And David is incensed. He walks into the camp, and think about it, he is the leader. He is going to inherit this army. He is going to inherit this country. It is going to be his. And what does he see? The people of God cowering in fear. He sees people questioning themselves, questioning their loyalties. And he asks why this Philistine is allowed.
allowed to continually argue and yell and scream and spit and shout and swear when God is on their side. And he discovers that Saul has made the battle about anything but God. In fact, he asks, what is going to happen to this Philistine? And one of the Israelites says in verse 25, now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter's hand in marriage, and he will exempt you from taxes in Israel. Saul made the battle about money and women, not about God. And David is incensed. He says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? My voice can't go that high, that's how incensed he was. <laughs> Verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And so David, David volunteers to fight. Remember, the Lord is with him. David does what the king should have done. And he doesn't want the king's armor, he doesn't want the king's weapons. He takes instead what he's familiar with, his sling and his staff. And he goes down to the battlefield. Now, once again, put yourself in the mind of the Israelites. You're sitting there watching this monster, day after day, with heavy arms and heavy armory. And here comes this young man, who's not even half the Philistine's size. Not even half as big. And he comes out there without anything but a stick and a sling. You can bet at that moment you're saying your prayers. Because you know you're about to die. And so there's David standing there. And Goliath looks at this little man. And he barks out at him. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he says, today I will give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. Now, that doesn't really translate very well for us. That was quite the insult back in those days. Uh, if you try to say that to somebody right now, they'll just look at you and walk away. They won't even know what you're talking about. But back then, it was saying, I am not even going to put you in the grave. I am going to leave you scattered in front of all of creation. And your bones will be picked at. And David looks at the Philistine, and he shouts back, You come against me, with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the entire Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword, not by the spear, that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. You see that? What David's concern is? He's concerned that every single person that is present there that day, the Israelites, the Philistines, Goliath, everyone, he wants them to know the name of the Lord. And so he stands there ready. Goliath sneers at this little man, picks up his javelin and gets ready to attack, and charges. He gets in very, very close. David's not moving. The Israelites start gasping for air. Oh my goodness, he's going to die. 
And then just at the right moment, as Goliath gets closer and closer, David charges, and he runs straight at him. Goliath thinks this is silly, because at this range, he could easily just cleave the kid in two, even with a javelin. And so he raises his javelin up, grips the cord tighter, and gets ready to strike. And while his spear is up in the air, David picks his target and fires. And the stone finds an exposed spot on Goliath's head and goes right in there. And Goliath doesn't even have a chance to move. His javelin falls out of his hand uselessly as he dies and collapses to the ground. And when this happens, a mighty shout comes out from the camp of Israel. And on the other side, a mighty shock. For their giant, their monster, their killing machine is dead. And just so that everyone would know that what he said was true, David goes over to this dead beast, draws his sword, cuts off his head. And so the Israelites, the Israelites charge. They go after their bounty, they go after the other camp. And Saul, Saul stands watching. And the Israelites surround David and they surround the, their enemies and they cheer and they give glory to God, they give glory to David. And Saul stands watching. And as the day winds down, Saul remembers a report that one of his spies has given him, saying that Samuel went to a town called Bethlehem. And he wonders, could this be the boy? Could this be the one that was anointed king? Because all of a sudden he realizes this guy has the favor of the generals. This guy has the favor of the army. This guy now has the favor of all of Israel. He has the favor of my family. He has the favor of my court. If he is of a higher birth than me, this could be the end of my kingship. And so he calls the commander of his army into his tent, a man by the name of Abner. He says, Abner, whose son is that? And Abner says, Your Majesty, I don't know. And so Abner goes out and finds David and brings him in. And he says, while David was still holding the head of the Philistine, which is really gross. He says, Son, who's your father? And David replies to him, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. And in that moment, all of Saul's worst fears are realized. And it's in that moment that we discover that this is not a story about a boy defeating a giant, because that's a fairy tale. This is not a story about God fighting our battles. This is not a story that tells us that we will be able to defeat all the Goliaths of this world. That's not what this story is about. This story is about obedience. This is a story all about obedience. Saul was the king. He was supposed to inspire people towards obedience in God. And instead, he made the battle about anything else. And David was the one that had to inspire people to God, to obedience. And so when we ask ourselves the question, do we measure up? I have another question to ask. Is the Spirit with you? Are you prepared to make your victories for God and God alone? 
Are you going to inspire people towards obedience? Because if you do, then yes, you will measure up. But if you don't, then you are a selfish person. I would be a selfish person. God placed his spirit on David and gave him the extraordinary gift to lead and to inspire. And that's what the gifting of the spirit is meant to do. It's meant to build up the body. It's meant to inspire people towards obedience. You see, in 2 Corinthians 10, we find out that we have battles to fight in this world. We really do. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. This is not us fighting Goliaths on literal battlefields. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you want to know if you measure up, judge yourself by this standard. Do you take every thought and make it obedient to Christ? Are your victories God's victories? Do you want to inspire people to obedience? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of David. God, I realize that it's so much easier to stand here and say, do you inspire people to obedience or not, than it is to actually go and inspire people to obedience. And so, Lord, we ask that you will teach us. Lord, we come right now and we confess our sins to you. We say, God, I have not been obedient in every regard, in every aspect of my life. And, Lord, we trust that you will take these sins and you will remove them from us, that you will clean us from them. And that you will restore us back on your path and put us where you want us to be. God, may our victories be your victories. May we worship you and you alone. And here this day, may the people know that there is a God in the land. May they know you. And in Jesus' name we